You're listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to www.redwoodbaptist.org. We hope and pray the message that you're about to listen to will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. You may be seated. Thank you so much for, for being here. And I said this earlier, and I want to say it again. Thank you for being here on my second favorite Sunday of the year. My second favorite, uh, my, my first favorite, I have a lot of favorites, I know, I, I, I cheat with this line right here all the time, but I got a lot of favorites, but my, my first favorite Sunday is by far Easter, as we gather together, we celebrate uh, the resurrection of the Savior, and you want to know why this is my second favorite Sunday? Here's why, because Jesus is still risen from the, say, from the grave, and you and I, we get to gather and we get to celebrate. You say, Ryan, there's a lot more empty seats than there were last week. That's okay, because we're still, we're gathered here, and uh, Jesus is risen, and uh, as I joked earlier, next week will be my third favorite, because he's still risen uh, next week as well. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, what God has for us here today. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter number two, and we're going to be getting, I've, I've missed our series entitled... Jesus, and uh, Jesus from the book of Mark, and we've been going uh, verse by uh, verse, or basically kind of idea uh, by idea through this, uh, through this book, and uh, I'm looking forward to what God has for us, and here's what I like about going verse by verse through a book. Number one, you don't get to, you don't get to candy coat anything. You don't get to kind of shy away from um, certain texts and things like that, and you get to just go kind of idea by idea, verse by verse through a book, and what comes up is the next, the next topic. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, this morning's, and you might be thinking, yikes, man, why did I come to church? Well, you just, just stick with me, okay? And uh, I promise you it will, be, um, it will be a help to us if we will have a heart that is yearning to learn that is an open heart of okay what can what can i take from this message and uh go into my life but i want to start off by asking you a question and the question is this what would redwood city or the cities around look like if satan took full control of the city if satan took absolute full control of Redwood City, the cities that you live in, Belmont, San Carlos, South, North, maybe across the bay, whatever the case is, all the way up in uh, Richmond, you know, if he took full control of that city, what would it look like? Now, I want to give you an answer that is possibly maybe very surprising for you, but I want you to, I want you to stick with me for a moment. If Satan took over our cities, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. The pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. Uh, Children would say yes sir and no ma'am and churches would be filled every Sunday. But... Those churches would never preach Christ. They'd never preach Christ. 
And so this morning, I want to I take our text, and the, 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 the title for our message this morning is, is The Gospel According to the Pharisees. The Gospel According to the Pharisees. I believe the greatest danger to the Gospel is not the atheistic threats. The greatest danger of the Gospel always has been and will continue to be a counterfeit Gospel. It is a Gospel that does not actually need Christ. And what a dangerous, uh, what's dangerous about this is its subtlety. That it exists with the same language. It exists in the same locations. It exists amongst committed, if you allow me to say this, religious people. And now, when you and I hear some of that, what, what, what I'm saying, you know, that, 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 that the anti-gospel is, is the worst uh, form of deception, sometimes we might think, well, that, that couldn't be me. You know, that's, that, that's not me. But the fact of the matter is, is that the seeds of a counterfeit gospel still exist in all of us. The struggle is not just from a pastor that is preaching. The struggle is not just found in uh, maybe classrooms at a college or a seminary. It is literally a day-by-day battle in our hearts. Because the true gospel of the complete and total reliance upon Jesus Christ is always replaced with one thing. And that is the gospel of self-praise. That is the gospel of self-righteousness. And so let me take you into the text that we're going to uh, break down through here this morning. Look at verse number 18. We've been, uh, it's been several weeks, of course, with leading up to Easter since we've been in our series on Jesus. But look at verse number 18. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they came and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Got to remember, Jesus has just gotten done with eating with publicans and sinners, and they're like, he's eating with bad people. And so now this is brought to him, verse 19. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and, and rent is made worse, or the whole is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, or kind of it would have been more of like uh, leather, like skins, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine be put into new bottles." And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read when David did, when he had need and was in hunger, and he and all that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abithar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat before the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. And then Jesus says, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
You and I this morning, we cannot, we cannot simply assume that we have and that we understand the gospel. It cannot just be something that we just take for granted. We must keep the gospel at the center of the church because we're always in danger of shoving it off to one side and letting something else take its place. Martin Luther once warned, there is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute it for the doctrines, now now hear this, of works and human traditions. The good news of the cross and the resurrection must be preached, believed, and lived, otherwise it will be lost. The church's greatest danger is not the anti-gospel outside of the church. It is the counterfeit gospel inside the church. And so you and I, we've got to realize that the the, the Judaizers in Antioch, they didn't wear shirts that said, hey, hug me, I am a false teacher. Okay, They didn't didn't wear uh, shirts like that. What made them so dangerous was that they they knew the talk, the way that that the Christians talked. They they used all all of the right terminology. And that is why I said one of the most serious, or the most serious threat, to the true gospel is something that is called the gospel. The most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but can still call Him Jesus. And so Christ is on a collision course here really through all of His ministry. And we're going to see it other times in the book of Mark with the gospel of the Pharisees. Their gospel no longer, no longer needs Christ. Because the gospel of self-reliance, it has two foundations. And these are basically going to be the two points or the two foundations really for our message. And that is this, the foundational stone of traditionalism and the foundational stone of legalism. This is what an anti-do-not-need-Christ gospel quote-unquote gospel, stands on. It stands on traditionalism and the foundation of the stone of legalism. And that's exactly what Christ collides with in these next two accounts. And so let's kind of go through it again, and we'll kind of break it up. And my prayer is that we'll glean from this truth, or from, from this word, the truths that God wants us to. Verse 18 again. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they came and say unto him, Why did the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Jesus, how come come your disciples that are following you, how come they're not fasting as well? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. And so Christ is asked this original question here, and he says, "How how come John's followers... How come they're fasting? How come the followers of the, the Pharisees and their teachings, how come, how come they fast and your 
men and your followers do not fast. Now, I want to give some background here uh, before I directly uh, relate to what Jesus said here. There is only one place in the Old Testament where fasting is commanded, and that was to be on the Day of Atonement. But fasting had become a tradition in the Old Testament, not necessarily a, a, a bad one. They would fast at times of prayer. They would fast at times of whenever they had a particular need. There's other times where you can read, you can go through the Old Testament, and you can find where people, they, they fast or they, they go without something, maybe food, but I think there's, I've taught on a series on fasting where you could fast maybe something else, where you're going to give something else up so that you can um, go before God. But often they would fast when they're mourning. And uh, so there is a precedent, but there was only ever one time where it was commanded to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees, what they had done is they had turned fasting into a, the tradition of fasting into a requirement. Okay, And so John's disciples, they were part of the, the message of repent and believe, and so often they would, uh, they would fast. But the Pharisees, they prided themselves because they fasted twice a week. They fasted on Monday as well as on Thursday. And their rigid fasting that they uh, chose to, uh, to do in their lives, it was used as a way of building up their pride as well as a way to determine someone's spirituality. So they would look to you and they would be like, hey, I'm a Monday and Tuesday kind of guy. How many days do you fast? And depending on your answer, I don't know if that's exactly how they ask, but uh, it would be you're spiritual or you're not. And you get a picture of kind of the, the, the Pharisees in Matthew 6 when Jesus addresses a couple of these different types of, uh, of spiritual things that we can do. Verse 2, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. Alms simply to give to the poor, to give to, to, give to the needy. And so what Jesus is saying is like, don't be like, hey, I'm giving to the poor. Look at me. See all these sack lunches to the homeless? We absolutely should do that. But what Jesus is saying, for those of you that are like, hey, look at what I'm doing. Here's my, here, here's my offering. I want everybody to see that go in. I'm exaggerating a little bit, right? Hey, having a little fun with you. So he says, hey, you've got your reward. If that's, if that's what you're looking for, you've already got it. People already think you're awesome. Okay, but when it comes with me in heaven, no, 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 no. Verse 5, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. And then Christ, later in the chapter, actually gets to fasting. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, this morning's message is not on fasting, but if you've ever tried it, you know, there's, you're hungry and you're, you're going without. So what Jesus is saying is don't let the whole world know that. Whatever, you know, sad countenance, man, I'm starving to death, whatever the case. Just do it. It's a spiritual, you know, it's a spiritual discipline. You know, giving is a spiritual discipline. Praying is a spiritual discipline. Fasting would be a spiritual discipline, but that's between, that's between you and God, Okay. And so Jesus is not confronting fasting in Mark 2 in and of itself. In fact, we've already read and we've already looked at where Jesus fasted himself in the book of Mark. 
What he's attacking is, is the traditionalism of the Pharisees. So to the Pharisees, fasting was not a humble seeking of God. It was not a brokenness before God. It was done before men so they can build themselves up. So the Pharisees, they would be, they'd be quite taken back. They'd be, they'd be a little outraged that Jesus' followers wouldn't have been fasting because this is what you have to do. This is what marks your spirituality. Now, certainly it would be a spiritual discipline, but it's not a mark of that. And if it were, I shouldn't see those marks upon you. And so they would be outraged a little bit. Their pride, their, their identity, it wasn't, it wasn't rooted in Christ or in God's work for them on their behalf. Instead, their identity was on their work. Look what I do. Look what I say. And here's how I live. And so Jesus begins his response by talking about guests at a wedding. Now listen, Jesus is probably not using the term bridegroom in the sense of the grand messianic way because that wouldn't have been fully laid out yet until later in scripture and so you know these people that are listening at the moment they, they they wouldn't have understood all of that and so i believe that he's using a wedding metaphor here in in mark chapter number two and so when the bride when the bridegroom comes or when the groom comes it's time to celebrate man this is hey the, 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 the groom is here this is, this is time, time to have fun, time to celebrate, not a time to fast. He's saying here, I come for my people, and my work is to unite myself to my people by grace. This is, this is a time to celebrate. Listen, th- this literally would have been, and it is still today for us, an amazing moment of celebration. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the God of creation literally became man literally incarnated god's feet so to speak literally stood and walked on our earth how awesome is that the celebration that 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 god would come to save the world it was a time for celebration it wasn't a time for fasting and so what happens is jesus is saying he's saying "Hey, hey hey guys you're you're getting it all wrong you're so bound up with your tradition that you cannot recognize this glorious new thing that God has done. Listen to me. That is what traditionalism does. It keeps you from recognizing what God is presently doing. It keeps us from celebrating what God is presently doing. You and I, we've got to be careful that we do not allow the traditionalism to shape the way that we think. Now, I loved, and I was aware of it, I loved the selection that Pastor Mike chose for us today. Did you notice there was a mixture of hymns? And we're going to sing a new song after the message. But then we had anthem, and then we have another new song. And so you're, you're bridging the gap. Here's why. Because at one point, don't miss this, at one point, every single hem in your hem book was new. At some point, the somebody, some, some leader of worship, whatever it looked like back then, was like, do I bring this new song to the church? Why? Because it wasn't a part of, don't miss this. I'm not bashing anything in that hymn book. But it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been the tradition of its day. 
And so what happens is if we're not careful and we take a tradition of our day and we elevate that to what God says we have to do, listen, we've made church all about us. Well, this is what I like. This is how I grew up. This is what, this is what I know. Hey, those are, real, it, those are real feelings. I get that. But we've all got to be willing. It's the truth of the songs. Okay? I could probably go on to dress, but I don't think I need to. I think you've probably kind of gone along with me. And the children of Issachar, which had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. You realize that sometimes what we deem as quote-unquote tradition hasn't always even been the tradition of church culture. You know, where we begin to say, hey, you know what, let, let, let me define what uh, what, what someone of what gender should wear. It's got to be this length. And I mean, just look at our look at our country's history. So I mean, I I, I grew up in, in an institution at a college where, where where there were certain rules that had to you know if, if a lady was going to wear a, a dress of any kind, it had to be two inches below the knee because if it was above the knee, somehow that was immodest. And yet, if you go back just a hundred years, that would have been to the ankle. And you see, traditions have changed. And so I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. But if we're not careful, if we place, and here's, listen, we're going verse by verse through a text, so don't get mad at me. Okay, this is what I love about expository verse by verse preaching, is we come to the, we, we, we come to the text. If we, if we make a traditionalism, everything, and we, and we hold that up, then what happens is we don't recognize what God is currently doing. And we can't celebrate that. Well, no, no, that's, uh, God's, God's not in that. Wait a minute, let's be cautious before we, uh, b- b- before, before we express our opinions too much. Are we doing okay? Whew, it's getting warm in here. I think it's probably because the windows need to be open and not because of the message. But here we go. And then Jesus, so he talks about the bridegroom and he says, hey, hey, fast when, uh, when, when, the, when, when the groom is here, it's the time to celebrate. Well, then he, then he foretells his death. And he's like, hey, there's going to come a day when the bridegroom's gone away. And that's the time to fast. And Jesus was, he, he was prophesying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go away. I'm going I'm to die on the cross. And then praise God, he's going to raise again three days later. We, uh, we celebrated that this past week. And so Jesus uses these two illustrations um, of putting a new piece of cloth that has been shrunk over an old piece of cloth that, that needs to be patched. And then the metaphor of pouring new wine into an old bottle or a new uh, potential le- le- leather skin or flask of some kind. And uh, both of the situations, what would have happened in, in, in his metaphor here? Well, if you put the new cloth on the old, when the new cloth shrinks, it tears away, and it's worse than before. If you put, put the, the new wine into the old cracked skin, it will come apart and leak, and the wine will be destroyed. Now, I don't actually think that these metaphors are meant to only teach old I believe, did you hear those words? I believe they are metaphors of compatibility. Of compatibility. I believe Christ is saying your way of thinking about tradition is utterly incompatible with the gospel of the kingdom. Because your way of thinking about those things relies on human effort and human righteousness and human strength. And so if we, if we put the two together the gospel actually will be destroyed. You cannot layer the gospel over traditionalism because the gospel must be kept pure. 
one must be in Christ and in Christ alone. So one is not a part of the kingdom of God. One is not born again because of anything on the exterior. Always the heart. It's always a renewed heart. It's always the new heart that, uh, that, 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 that God gives us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to be cautious of this. I'm going to put it back together at the end, so uh, be okay. I'm not, I'm not totally bashing traditionalism. But I'm just saying we cannot elevate that to the level of the gospel. We cannot elevate traditionalism as, hey, hey, this is what makes somebody spiritual. <clears throat> Believe it in Christ. And that renewedness is what is what does. So Mark comes to the second issue. We still doing okay? All right? Good. All right. Not everyone's doing okay. I'm just kidding. Verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and the disciples began. As his disciples began, and as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do you why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Talk about that here in a moment. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abithar and the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The way that the Pharisees interpreted the Sabbath, law was both prideful and very burdensome. They were not content with just Sabbath laws. What always happened in legalism, so now we're kind of looking at the other foundation of a counterfeit gospel, would be that, that they, would, they would always add. The law would say this, but then, they would, but then they would add to it. And so the teachers of the law, they would interpret, and then they would reinterpret, and then they would interpret, and then they would reinterpret, and they would interpret, and they would reinterpret, to where, man, after a couple, after a couple generations... Ooh, it was like interpretation and, hey buddy, my son, love the kid, all right? That, that, that'll be great on the web right there. And so they're like, like eons away from, oh, that reminds me of a quick story here. This will be great for the web too, Mike. Mike and Jess are getting married, it was a couple months ago, and somebody got up and said like your kids needed to be with you, and right at that moment, this was at night, the lights on were outside, my son was on the outside of the fellowship hall standing up in the window and his whole silhouette was in the window as they're saying you know your children need to be with you and the pastor's kid wasn't even with him but uh, so where was i it's all right so they interpret then they reinterpret and so on and so forth and so it came all the way down to the minutest level of different things can i give you a couple examples of those just to kind of help us wrap our minds around things the pharisees would reason and that because you could not work on the Sabbath, that was, you know, that, that, that was one of God's laws, not to, to work on the Sabbath. But for them, they would define it to such that it meant that you could only take 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. And so a good legalist, you know what they would do? They would say, one, two, three. They would literally count their steps. And they believed that the law taught that you must not reach 2,000 cubits or you can also say steps and so so you can't they interpreted that you could you couldn't take 2,000 steps rather than what maybe a looser interpretation would be if you're going back to exodus you can't go in two 2,000 cubits 
in any direction of your camp or city. And so you could kind of walk within it, but you just couldn't go too far out, north, east, west, south, so on and so forth. And so you could see that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count my steps. And so if it was wrong to work on the Sabbath, then carrying something, it actually needed to be defined. And so the teachers of the law said that you must carry nothing heavier than a fig. Now you're probably wondering the same thing that I was wondering. Why a fig? And who came up with a fig? What person was like, hmm, all right, so, so we want to we wanna capture godliness. We want to we make sure that we're godly. So we can't work, and so I can't lift anything more than a, yeah, I know, a fig. A fig. You couldn't, oh, yes, good idea. You couldn't do this according to their law. Take something in your right hand, throw it, and catch it with your left hand. Or you couldn't do the left to the right. You want to why? Because that would have been considered work. Work. That's where it goes if we're not careful. That's the, that's the depths of legalism. Women were not told to bathe on the Sabbath day. Now you're wondering, wow, what? The reason why is because if you were taking a bath and you accidentally spilled water on the floor, you'd be tempted to want to clean that up, which would then be considered work. I don't know why they pick on women, but women were told not to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Because if you were to look in the mirror and maybe you would see like a gray hair there, you'd be tempted to pluck that gray hair. You know, So you're not allowed to look in the mirror. You're not allowed to be told that, 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 that you're aging. Okay, moving on, ladies. You couldn't wear jewelry unless it was lighter than, you know what? What? A fig. And so they were told, hey, wear fake jewelry. How, how fitting is that? To wear some fake jewelry. I mean, this is where it goes. If we're not careful, it goes down to the, to the, to the minutest level. Now, hear what is happening. Hear me, hear me, hear me. We've had a little fun this morning, laughing a little bit, okay? I'm not trying to mock, in a sense, anybody, but this is just, this is how, how far it can go if we're not careful. Legalism never elevates God's law. Never. That's sometimes what we think. It never elevates God's law. Legalism reduces God's law. It diminishes God's law. It has to do that because it makes God's law humanly doable standard. And so one would say, hey, I'm not going to kill. Hey, that's a good standard to have, right? Come on. Please, no one. We need to pray for those that are down in the San Diego area and uh, in Sri Lanka and all of the, the people that are just harming people in churches. And I don't mean to make light of that. But hopefully none of us in here have killed anybody. Hopefully none of us in here uh, you know, have, have any desire to, to kill somebody. And so Jesus, when, when, when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, hey, you know, you've said thou shalt not kill. But let me, let me, let me tell you what it really says. And let, let me tell you the real law, the unbending law, is that you can't even hate somebody in your heart. Because if you have, you've basically committed murder already. Hey, I'm not going to ever commit the act of adultery. Step out on, uh, on the marriage. Well, say, yes, that's great. Keep that standard. And you should. 
But what Jesus is saying in, 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 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, but if you've even looked at, at a woman with, with the wrong kind, if you've lusted, man, you've committed adultery in your heart already. And so here's what I'm trying to say. The, the actual law, the actual standard is so high, and it's meant to be that high. It's meant to do that. And so what happens is, is if, we, if we become legalistic in the way we do things, we take that law and we try to, we try to bring it down. To where we can where we can keep it. We reduce it, we reduce it, we reduce it until it's something that all of us can keep. And when we keep it, we swell in pride and we condemn others that don't keep our laws, our way of thinking. Now listen, that's that's dangerous. So I want you to notice the logic here, the logic of this of this text. I'm gonna to get to it here in a moment that of, of this. The logic is, is I can count my steps, but I may not have a heart that is worshiping the creator of all things. So listen, if I'm not worshiping him as I'm counting my steps, I've broken the Sabbath. Because that's what the Sabbath was for. One, two, three, four. Hey, no, can't be more than a fig. Again. Just trying to have a little fun with us. But if I'm not worshiping the creator of all things during that, listen, I can be counting my steps all day long and be missing it. You see, this is how dangerous it is. It has nothing to do with what the law was meant to do. It is a distortion of the Sabbath because it moves away from this, this joyful excitement that God welcomes me into his presence. And when I'm in that presence, I get to worship him by his grace. I could never achieve that on my own. It took all of Jesus' work. He's the one that died for me. He's the one that forgave me. He's the one that hears my prayer, and he wants to commune with me. That is awesome to me. I want you to say in your mind right now, God desires communion with us. Say that in your mind. All right, let's all say it together. God desires communion with us. Let's say it again. God desires communion with us. That blows my mind. That just, it's just so radical to me that God, this, this wretch right here of a sinner, that God would desire communion. It's glorious. And all of that is what the Sabbath is about. That I can rest from my labor and shockingly I can be welcomed into the presence of Almighty God. Not because I'm holy, but because He is a God of grace, because He is holy, because of Jesus if we're weighing our fig against our bracelet or our watch, listen to me, we're not worshiping. We've, we've got some things wrong. If we're, if, if, if we're trying to worship and we're, yeah, let me go there, and we're worried about what everybody else is wearing, listen, we're not worshiping. Okay? It's our text. Don't get mad at me. I'm still excited that it's the, second, or the first Sunday after Easter. Jesus is still here. Holy Spirit is still alive. If the things that God, this will be up on the screen, has taught you and the way he has worked by grace in your life is leading you to look down on others who are less mature than you, we're missing the point. Praise God for his sanctification work in our lives. Amen? Praise God for, for the slain of sin. I taught a, I don't even know how many weeks I was. It was defeating sin. You know I'm against sin. But man, 
when you start getting some victories over things, when you start sanctifying, when you start becoming more like Christ, hallelujah! But if that brings us to the place where we now look down upon somebody that hasn't matured like we have, guys, we're missing it. We're missing it. This passage, I wanted to skip it. Because I knew I was getting back into the series after Easter. I told you that a couple weeks ago. It's like, eh, it's very important for us. Now, as Jesus' disciples are traveling through Galilee on the Sabbath, they're, they're plucking wheat, they're, they're, they're crushing the heads of, of, of the grain, and they're, they're eating it. And the Pharisees are looking, and they say, hey, they're harvesting. They're, they're working. They're, they're breaking your law. And, of course, Jesus tells the story of when David was fleeing from Saul. If you want to read about that, that's 1 Samuel chapter 21. And David and his men, they, they, they needed food. And they found themselves at the tabernacle where the priest allowed them to eat the, the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was 12 loaves of bread that were taken into the tabernacle hot. And they pictured the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were a symbol of God's provision of His fellowship with them. And it was forbidden for anyone to eat of that except for the priest. But David goes in there, feeds his men. And so Jesus is literally arguing. And this argument is shocking the Pharisees. He says that the, per, per, excuse me, the, perser, the preserving, it's a hard word, the preserving of human life is more valuable than ceremony. So Jesus is saying, he's saying, hey, hey Pharisees, hey, you're getting it completely wrong. If David was able to do this along with the priest and there was no reprimand from God, then there is nothing wrong with my disciples eating on the Sabbath. And then Jesus gives these two statements. The Sabbath, ah, that was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he goes on to say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The institution of the Sabbath, that goes all the way back to creation. And it's a grace. This is God who knows a couple things about us. He knows the limits of our strength, and He would give us a day, this is so awesome, where we, without being irresponsible, can rest from our labors. We literally can kick the feet up if you need be. So we, uh, well, what a sweet and gracious thing. You do not have to hear me work 24-7. God knows your weaknesses, and God loves you. And from the very beginning of creation, He says, I, I know my creation so much that I'm going to give them a day of rest. So hear me. Stop and rest. And while you're doing that, celebrate His love. Celebrate Him. It's awesome. And so God knows something else about us as I close. He knows that for you and for me, worship, that it's a war. And since that's the case, it's important that one time a week, we get rid of all other things and we turn our hearts in a more intentional and more, and we, as we did it just now, collective way of worshiping Him. Listen to me. You know what Sundays are? Sundays are grace. The Sabbath, it's a grace. That God would be like, hey, I know you. I know how hard it is to juggle everything in your life. Right? And so He says, hey, I want you to I want you to guard. I want you to guard that day to where you can, where you can rest. 
And as you're resting, remember what they were supposed to be doing during the Sabbath. They were supposed to be acknowledging God. They were supposed to be worshiping God. They were supposed to be celebrating God. And God says, hey, I know that it's so hard for you and I to keep it right. Man, it's hard for me. So I'm going to set a day aside for Ryan. I'm going to set a day aside for everybody in here where you can come and you can collectively worship and celebrate the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one that saved you. But when you and I, when we turn the Sabbath into a burdensome system of tiny condemning laws, I've missed the point. Ah, you gotta, you gotta come a certain way, and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta sing a certain way. You've got. I've made it burdensome, and I'm missing the point. And then if the Sabbath becomes something that becomes a keepable standard. That is about our righteousness and not our needfulness for the God who we are to worship. How we don't come every Sunday broken and God, I need you. I'm missing it. I'm missing it. Jesus is ultimately saying here, and I'm almost finished. He's saying, boys, men, here's what you need to understand. You're criticizing the lawgiver. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that stood at creation. I'm the one that instituted the Sabbath. I am the giver of the law. Hence, I am the one that can interpret my laws. See, according to verse 28, Jesus, he was, the, he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And not only is he the Lord of the Sabbath, he is the ultimate fulfiller of the Sabbath. Scripture tells us that he purchased through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, a Sabbath rest for his people. A Sabbath rest for for Christians, that we can rest from our labors. Listen, the pursuit of trying to please God in Christ, hallelujah, is over. The pursuit of trying to to measure the metrics of, well, if I just do this and I just do this and I just do this, no, no, no. All of that was laid at rest when Jesus said, it is finished. And then three days later, God says, hey, come forth. And that's his amen. So it is finished. It's a time to, time to rest from that. No longer do we carry the burden of the law. No longer, if we believe in Christ, do we carry the curse of the law because Christ carried it all away for us. Jesus has satisfied God's requirements. And praise God, His righteousness is given over to our account. Praise Him for that. So Jesus is kind of saying, and I believe He would say to, be, saying to us this morning would be this. Why would you want to turn back? Why would you want to turn back to that old system? The new has be, or the old has become new, and the new is a, is a better way. And yet, as I preached this and as I prepared this week for this message, I realized that the seed of self-congratulation, the seed of self-reliance, the seed of self-righteousness, Still lives within me. And that's why, church, we cannot quit defending and clarifying and defining the true gospel that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel message that says you have one hope and one hope alone. And it's his life and it's his death and it's resurrection. And by the way, you never graduate from that. We don't become grace graduates. We will forever 
continually need what Christ did for us. His forgiving, delivering, transforming grace. And let me say this. I thank God for some traditions. Some great godly traditions. And I in no way desire to tear all those things down. But here's what I want to say. We can never place traditions to the level of God's Word. Never. I want to say before you this morning, I'm literally about to, about to pray. I know I've said that a couple times. I am so thankful for the beauty of the law. Because you know what the law, the law is beautiful to me. Because you know what the law does? The law breaks me over and over and over again and it makes me run to Christ. It makes me run to His finished work on our behalf. Listen, the law, it can never replace Christ. May God protect us from that. See, if Satan could have his way, Satan would make everyone look good on the outside. He'd make everybody talk beautifully. He'd make everybody just not do any bad stuff. If they thought and if they believed that that doing or the lack of doing thereof would be the source of heaven, he would love that. And so the counterfeit gospel is that we don't need Jesus. Hey, just clean up. Talk right. But I want to encourage us to to find rest in Jesus Christ. And may the Lord protect us by His grace. Let's pray.